So I want to talk uh, tonight specifically about refuge and sangha, but really reflections tonight and tomorrow are both about sangha, uh, as you'll see. Uh, but tonight I want to zero in specifically on um, understanding refuge and sangha. And, and this takes a little bit of unpacking, surprisingly. Um, you know, we have to begin with the meaning of, of sangha. And um, at the risk of stepping on people's toes or disappointing people about this, uh, I have to say that technically sangha does not mean you know, the totality of those who are committed to living in accordance with the teachings. It's taken on that kind of meaning in the West. But this is really a new uh, occurrence um, in the uh, Pali Canon and in the commentaries uh, about refuge, about Buddha Dhamma Sangha. There's a very specific meaning for Sangha, and uh, it includes lay people, but um, only as we realize different stages of awakening. So we, we look, I remember this uh, categorization of uh, Buddha Dasa as the, the mundane or the simple level and the super mundane or the liberating or transcendent level. At the mundane level, um, it means um, li- literally the order of monks and nuns, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, taking refuge in that order by, by shaving your head and taking robes and <laughs> getting your bowl and and join in, uh, that, join in that particular uh, way of practicing. And at the super-mundane level, it means very specifically the Arya Sangha. So the, uh, we, we talk about the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings, and that's referring to um, the, those who have realized uh, each of the four stages of awakening and uh, are about to realize it. There's a technical meaning in there, which I won't go into. Uh, And so um, uh, the Arya Sangha includes anybody, um, lay or monastic, who has realized various stages of awakening. But, you know, as we know, in recent years, particularly in the West, as I said, this term has been adopted in this broader context to, to mean this broader community of practitioners. And... Um, you know, some purists uh, have, take exception to that and, uh, you know, kind of wish we could roll back time and, and uh, pick these words up and these ideas up uh, in a way that's more accurately uh, the way they appear in the Pali Canon. Bhikkhu Bodhi is one of these, and uh, he says that it was never meant in this broader sense, and he says that, that lay people are included, clearly, but um, as members of the Arya Sangha. And uh, Tan Jeff, he proposes another word altogether. He says that, uh, you know, to avoid this incorrect use of the word sangha, um, that the word parisa is the word to use. Uh, that it, 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 that actually does mean the broader community of lay followers, or followers, period, not just lay. And uh, this is interesting because uh, Ajahn Chah would use that word every time he talked to... Um, particularly when he was talking to lay people, he would start his uh, desanas with um, welcome all of you Buddha Parisa. And what that meant is you communi- the community of followers of the Buddha. And you may, some of you may know that there's an a, a assembly or group of uh, people in the Boston area uh, who meet regularly and support the monastic community. And uh, that's the name they've given themselves, Buddha Parisa. Uh, you know, uh, one of the main people in that is the mother of the monk who's uh, started this monastery uh, up in New Hampshire. 
So uh, interesting, you know. Um, but at this point, I don't think I don't think that anything's going to happen, and I'm not even suggesting that it should. You know, I uh, I, I kind of like the use of the word sangha, and um, to, and and like it to include this broader community. And one of my um, favorite Pali scholars, Ajahn Funadamo, uh, you know, I talked about it with him, and he said, no, he doesn't have any quarrel with it, because as we'll see tomorrow when I talk about the fourfold family. Um, that he said he thinks sangha and this broader use of it uh, actually applies in that way. It's actually uh, in keeping with the early teachings in that sense. Yeah, granted it wasn't used that way, but the meaning of it is clearly being used that way. So tonight I just want to look at this technical meaning, and certainly I'll bring us into the picture because there's ways that we learn from these categories and work within them. Um, so just to look first of all at the uh, mundane or, or the, the simple level, and this, as I said, has to do with uh, the order of, of monks and nuns, uh, bhikkhus and bhikkhunis, and um, taking refuge there, like recognizing that this is a, a way of living, a style of living that is supremely supportive to the, the task at hand, if you will. Um, and uh, what we have here is a group of people who's, uh, who make a commitment. It's very interesting if you've ever attended uh, an ordination ceremony. Some of the language within the ceremony itself, uh, and it's very clear, and they're trained on this and schooled on this as they prepare for ordination and challenged and questioned to um, uh, acknowledge or admit, are you... Uh, on the path of awakening and interested in going all the way to nirvana. And, and that, the language in the ordination ceremony says that uh, that's what I'm doing. I'm signing on so I can realize nirvana. And so that's very, very powerful. And as you know, those of you who are interested in ceremonies and rites and rituals, you know, it, it pulls... Uh, for the, that level of commitment, and um, you know, you see some of them in in the preparations. Not they're just sort of shaking in their boots, you know, not not because they have to memorize all this poly for the ordination, but it's like getting married or something. You know, is this really what I want to do? <laughs> you know, am I am I going to drop my uh, involvement in worldly life and uh, take this up to this degree? But that's what they're saying. And, and then uh, a, a key part of their life is that um, they are agreeing, and not all of them do this, but they're basically saying that they are in relationship with the rest of the world. And as they um, enjoy the fruits of practice and come to understand the teachings, they have somewhat of a responsibility. That might be too strong a word, but um, they have, let's just say they have a high interest in uh, guiding other people in their practice. And they do that without um, uh, asking anything in return. That this is, uh, in, in a way, it's kind of like a, an offering that they have uh, to the, 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 bigger, the broader world for um, supporting them in the way that um, uh, Buddhist uh, countries and Buddhist communities do. So, uh, you know, teaching is, a, is very much a part of that. And um, I think of them as the professionals. You know, we're all serious practitioners, and there's no question there. And we're all applying ourselves uh, to the utmost. Uh, and we're householders, and there's a lot of things about our life that make it difficult to um, 
uh, apply ourselves, you know, to the degree that might be possible if we could put aside some of the duties and responsibilities that we have. So in that sense, I, I, this is, I think of them in this way. You know, they're, they're, they've pulled out all the stops. And, that, and, and it's interesting, because to say that, you might think one is saying that diminishes us, but it doesn't. <laughs> it, it doesn't <coughs> diminish us at all. And, you know, I, I hear that sometimes when you start to talk about this. Some people think that the Buddha is um, saying that uh, monastic life is the only path and that uh, you can't get free as a lay person. And, uh, you know, I, had, uh, I personally had a lot of interest in finding out what he said about this because it was very clear to me that even, uh, even though I've spent uh, almost five years inside monastery walls uh, over the course of uh, the last uh, 25, 28 years, um, you know, I wasn't making the choice to become a nun. You know, I was like, well, this is interesting. <laughs> Why isn't this happening? But it clearly wasn't the path. You know, it clearly wasn't something that, that one was choosing. And so it, it became something that I wanted to understand. What does he say about it? And, and, uh, and uh, I wanted it to guide my choice. You know, is this, am I being foolish? Or is there, is there really a way to realize liberation as a lay person? So I found a whole lot of suttas and uh, just kind of whittled it down to a few to, to give testament to what the Buddha is saying because he is, uh, is clearly not saying that lay people cannot realize various stages of liberation. And here's one from um, uh, the Majjhima Nikaya where he says, um, uh, he, he, he says that the long and short of it is that <coughs> Uh, lay people can clearly attain the various stages of awakening essentially if they do the work you know that, that that's the issue is whether or not one applies oneself to the path uh, and, and, and the way that he says it is um, uh, if householders one who observes uh, conduct in accordance with the Dhamma righteous conduct should wish oh that by realizing for myself the direct knowledge I may hear and now enter upon and abide in the deliverance of the mind in the deliverance of, uh, by wisdom it is possible you know, he, says, he says that very clearly and you could say you know, if you do the work and that might be a big if but still it's, it's, uh, that's for us to sort out each of us individually and so similarly in another sutta the, the Buddha says that it's practicing correctly that determines whether or not one will attain the fruits you know, and that not whether one is a lay person or or a monk or nun. So whether for a lay person or one gone forth, I praise the right way. Right? Some say that's the eightfold path. Uh, whether um, it's a it's for a lay person or one gone forth um, who is practicing rightly, because of undertaking the right way of practice, one attains the path, the, the Dhamma that is wholesome. And what is the right way? The eightfold noble path. And, and here, it's something that the monastics always are talking to us about, reminding us that we're all on the same path. You know, they, they might have 227 rules, but, uh, and we, we have uh, five or eight precepts, but it's all in line or in keeping with following the Eightfold Path. They're doing the same thing that we're doing. And in one sutta I found, I thought this was really interesting, uh, given some teachings that I've heard elsewhere, um, the Buddha says very clearly that even great wealth is not a deterrent 
to um, liberating the mind. He says, and this is in the Dhammapada, though richly adorned, if one's behavior is calm, peaceful, restrained, settled, and unlustful, and one has put down the stick against all creatures, one is a Brahmin, a renunciant, a monk. And he's not distinguishing lay or monastic in that. So, uh, further in my research, I wanted to look and to see, you know, um, what, what's the evidence in the suttas of, of individuals, real-life people who have, done, who have realized it. And it, I don't know if this interests you or not, but I, I did f- find many, many references to lay people who had realized various stages of awakening. And some of them, especially after this week, will be very familiar to you. You know, one, uh, one of the primary uh, ones is uh, Anattapindaka, this major benefactor, uh, two two uh, benefactors really, one a man, one a woman, Anatta Pinda, Pindaka and Visaka, both very wealthy people who lived um, in the area of the Buddha, donated great properties and monasteries to them and uh, great quantities of, of requisites, supported um, hundreds of monks and nuns throughout their lifetime. Anatta Pindaka reached the first stage of awakening before he died, he was really considered to be the chief lay disciple uh, of the Buddha. And uh, Wisaka, you know, you may remember that wonderful story of the woman who wanted to give uh, 500 gifts of uh, robes and bowls uh, to uh, the monks and nuns at the beginning of the rains uh, retreat. I don't know if you heard this story, but it's so beautiful because uh, she was insistent on making this huge offering and the Buddha challenged her and said, why? You know, why do you want to do it? And uh, she said, uh, because uh, when I see them in the robes and when I see them carrying the bowls that I offered, my heart will be so happy and I'll, uh, my, my meditation will go well. <laughs> you know, very clearly linking the joy that she would feel uh, in her own generosity uh, to um, how her meditation would go well. And, uh, you know, and the Buddha said, yeah, you know, that's the right answer. <laughs> you know, you can give the gift, you know. Uh, and then uh, one of my favorites uh, is Chitta. And um, it, it, those of you who are familiar with the um, uh, Samyutta Nikaya, the, this is that collection of teachings where the Buddha categorized, or the, the, the followers of the Buddha have categorized and Collated various teachings in different categories. So you've got the Khanda Samyutta has all the teachings on the five aggregates. You know, the, the Deva Samyutta has all the teachings on the, uh, the various Devas, that kind of thing. The Bojanga is all about the seven factors of awakening. Well, there's one in there called the, the Chitta Samyutta. And Chitta means mind. And so I thought, well, you know, I picked it up one day because I thought, well, this is going to be all about the mind. This will be really juicy. And, and uh, it wasn't. It was about, it was all the teachings of Chitta, the lay follower, <laughs> who was this uh, renowned, he was the foremost in understanding and knowledge among uh, the laity um, who were in and around the, the monastery. And he was often called upon to teach the monks and nuns because he was so knowledgeable, and his knowledge was exceeded many of theirs. You know, so, uh, and he, during his lifetime, uh, realized the third stage of awakening. 
He's a very powerful uh, practitioner. And, and uh, just uh, another one, uh, Sudatta um, be- became a once-returner. Uh, and this, there's, a, there's a collection in the Samyutta Nikaya that's all about the, um, it's the Sotapanna, Sotapati Samyutta, all about the first stage of awakening. So it includes a litany of various people, lay and monastic, who realized the first stage of awakening. And uh, Sudatta and Sujata, or the, the, the woman who gave the rice milk to the Buddha to uh, uh, strengthen him uh, on, uh, after his, all of his ascetic practices, uh, both of them uh, realized the first stage of awakening. And of course, uh, Mahapachapati, um, she realized the, the first stage as a lay woman, and then uh, joined the order of uh, nuns and was the first nun and uh, went all the way to final liberation at that stage. And, and um, King Bimbisara's wife, she was very accomplished, uh, became uh, an arahant before she died. Yeah, she asked at some point uh, if she could uh, leave the king and join must have been before he died, obviously. <laughs> but leave him and join the order, and he, he gave her his blessing, and, and she became an arhat. So, you know, clearly, uh, lay life is not a deterrent. And I don't know, I, this may not mean anything to you, but I needed to know that, you know. I, I needed to uh, look into it myself and um, feel some uh, validation for this path that I have chosen, because... I look around me and I see people like you and many others who are clearly very serious about this. You know, there's a, there's a, a commitment, a profound commitment here. And uh, one seems to benefit, at least early on, from external, some external reassurances that uh, we're not making a mistake in that. So what he does say, however, is that uh, the monastic life offers greater support. And, you know, that, that makes sense to me. <laughs> you know, it's because of the, um, uh, the way that it's set up. Where it, uh, I remember one, uh, one of the monks, one of my teachers, uh, telling me, he said, he just couldn't believe it. Because he was from a working, he's a working class Brit, you know, struggled um, much of his life just to make a living. And... Um, he said that the first thing they, they give you when you don the robes and shave your head is um, you know, food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. And you know, he said, I never thought about it before, but as a layperson, I spent so much energy trying to, to get food, clothing, shelter, and medicine. You know? It was a huge effort just to, to keep this body going. You know? And uh, this was uh, all given to him the, the minute that he was ordained. And he said, he, he, just, he was just streaming tears with, with gratitude. I can't believe this. Oh my gosh, this is going to be so helpful, that kind of feeling. So, um, you know, we're pointing the, to this as a, as a huge support. And here's what the Buddha says about it. He says, if, if one renounces household life, becomes a recluse and leads a pure and celibate life. This is a worthy, worthy jewel. This is a huge help, a huge support. So it, it, it offers great support. And, um, you know, we've seen some passages where the Buddha himself even said that 
the household life was difficult. Uh, in a way, it took it took so much energy that um, that's why he shaved his uh, head and shaved his beard and took up took up the robes, uh, robes and went forth into homelessness. And there's many stories uh, throughout the suttas just emphasizing the um, the difficulty of household life and and the great support that one feels in, in monastic life. Uh, and, uh, you know, one, one example of it is when, when he gave advice, when the Buddha gave advice to lay people um, on how to be happy, he, he would um, clearly say that there was happiness in the worldly realm. You know, we've, we've talked about this before when we talked about feeling, worldly feeling. And, and uh, he wasn't quarreling with any of that. You know, that the whole idea that one should uh, um, deny or abandon sense pleasures. Uh, on one level, they can't be avoided. You know, that things are pleasant by their nature. And and he went so far as to say that it wasn't a, a it, it wasn't a bad thing to live in that uh, in that world. One just wants to temper the um, attraction, the attachment to it all. Uh, but having said that, then he. Uh, you know, in that in the Satipatthana Sutta, he does point to the the, the great pleasures of uh, renunciation, and elsewhere, many 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 places, that um, of when when it comes to pleasure, renunciation trumps sense pleasure. That's basically what he's saying, and this is not to be believed, but to be seen for ourselves. Look and see. Is it true? And I've certainly found it, found it to be true. So anyway, I don't, don't really have a quarrel with all of this. I, I just think that the Buddha is simply pointing to the fact that, um, you know, in a way, he went to the trouble to put together this order and sustain it for all of those years. And, uh, you know, he knows firsthand what it takes to liberate this mind. Uh, and, you know, putting these two together, why wouldn't he recommend... <laughs> following um, that particular path. You know, he, he couldn't have encouraged, encouraged us otherwise. You know, it's, it's kind of like, given what I know, this is, this is a, a good deal. This is a good path. But also, I, I think he's trying to point us, uh, you know, as John Amaro calls him, the ultimate pleasure seeker. You know, he's trying to point us to that ultimate pleasure. You know, you want happiness? This this is a this is one way to experience it. So whether you interpret um, all of this as meaning literally the renunciate life or renunciation itself, uh, it doesn't matter. I think it's up to us. It's up to each of us to uh, sort that out, and you know maybe reconcile this teaching about uh, monastic life over lay life in in some way that that works for us. And I, I see that we actually have all done that, are doing that, and particularly in the West. It's an interesting phenomenon, not something that has been seen for, for centuries, really, how lay people have um, taken up uh, renunciation in, in mass numbers. Uh, and, uh, and I don't mean uh, by joining monastic life. I mean in lay life, you know, doing it... Um, Full on to the best of our ability uh, in, in lay life, and 
you know, for myself, I, I, I do it by uh, going to the monastery a lot, I certainly do retreats, but um, I found that I have to. <laughs> it's like my lifeblood. I, I have to go to the monastery at least a month every year, preferably two or three, sometimes even more. That um, well, Because what I notice, and it's not, it, it's not like, isn't that fun, and isn't it a nice thing to do, and look at me, I go to the monastery, you know? It, it's, it's about, it's like a survival thing. You know, I, I watch my mind, and um, over the course of the year, um, especially if I'm in an environment where I don't have a lot of structure, and a lot of support around practice, you can watch the mind start to drift. You know, I'm sure you've seen this, or I hope you haven't, but I suspect you probably have. You know, where it, it doesn't take much for it to start to drift, and so um, you know, we need a booster shot, and that's one of the ways I do it. That you know, all of us go on retreats, come to the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, do any number of things to get that booster shot, to keep... It's like a chiropractic adjustment, you know, regularly, to, to just <clears throat> kick it back into place. Okay, I'm forgetting what's important. I'm, I'm losing uh, my sense of it, or just beginning to drift. Uh, and, uh, you know, one time when I was teaching with Ajahn Amaral, I love the way he put it, um, he was introducing us to the, the, uh, the meditators who were there, and he said, uh, he says, I'm Ajahn Amaral, I've gone forth. And this is Taranea. She goes back and forth. <laughs> and so that's, that's pretty apt, you know? We, and that's what we all do, isn't it? We, we go back and forth and get that, get that adjustment on a regular basis. So, um, one of the things, just, just one more point on this mundane level. Um, years ago, when I was coming, um, I came on staff as, um, over at IMS as the resident teacher. And uh, I was a, a little bit too idealistic, I have to admit. But um, I had discussed with the guiding teachers before coming there, I said, you know, you got, what you have here in staff life is a ready-made setup for um, a, a lay training. You know, yeah, look at it. I mean, all of the staff, what their job is, is, is generosity. You know, it's, it's, it's just giving, uh, serving, uh, and, and practicing, supporting um, uh, other practitioners. It, it, it doesn't get more noble than that, you know. And uh, I, I said, what do you say we try to uh, structure a staff um, lay training, make staff life lay training. And they say, oh yeah, that sounds good, that sounds good. So, so then I come in there and, and start to try to do it. <laughs> and, and, and man, I got creamed. Uh, you know, it was so bad. People were very resistant and didn't want to uh, go in that direction. You know, even something as simple as, um, uh, I, think, I think it would be nice if we all sat together. You know, it's like, no, you know, is this mandatory? Do we have to do this, you know? It was a it was a tricky time in in uh, IMS history. Uh, probably not the right time to try something like this, but uh, silly old foolish me, I did. Uh, and and you know it didn't go well. 
and and I wish that it had because it it, uh, it it's gone very very much in another direction now. It seemed like a very very much a missed opportunity, uh, but I, I really got hung out to dry. You know, even the guiding teachers abandoned me at some point. Ah. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it was like, oh no. Uh, but it was a good lesson. I learned a lot from it. And and one of the things that um, I did to prepare for it was um, I interviewed uh, a, a number of monks and nuns. Um, I was going to Amravati at the time. And uh, one of the senior most monks in particular was very, very helpful. And what I was asking them is, okay, what is it about your life that is so conducive? You know, if you had to, if you had to characterize it, if you had to reduce it to a few points, what, what is it about your life that is so conducive? Because surely we as lay people can adopt that and bring it into our lives, you know? And uh, so uh, Ajahn Viradamo uh, uh, gave me these three things. And it's actually it's got its basis in the teachings as well. But he said that number one, it's restraint. Restraint of the senses. Um, setting up our lives so that that is the, the cornerstone uh, of how we're trying to be. And, you know, it, it, what this does, as we have all seen through uh, doing meditation retreats and being here in places like this, is uh, it, it gives us the opportunity to see the wanting, which without the restraint, you would just, we would just be following, you know? Uh, and so it, it kind of puts a little wedge in there and allows us to just... Uh, hold up and, and see this impulse and feel what that impulse feels like and uh, also see the consequences of following through on it. And, uh, it, it enormously powerful. And, uh, you know, just doing retreats. Um, I can remember one time coming up to IMS for a three-month retreat and on the way, I know it's coming off the Mass Pike and coming up uh, through Ware uh, and South Barry one of the last um, areas where there's a lot of shops, there was this McDonald's. And I thought, as I was driving past that McDonald's, oh, I should get a, get a milkshake, you know. But I didn't do it. I kept going. And I lived to regret that, you know, for the next three months <laughs> because I could not stop thinking about that milkshake, you know. <laughs> it just went on. It haunted me for the, for the entire three months. But boy, did I learn about the value of sensory strength. I had a car. I had car keys. I could get in it, but I was determined not to and to feel... How, many, how much time do we spend in that state of wanting and to really, really feel it? And, and by using sense restraint, by not following that impulse, it was, like, oh, it was torture. You know, I mean, I've got a majorly greedy mind, you know. It doesn't take much of an idea, and I'm off to the races, you know. But uh, this is the power of um, putting these things into our lives. Uh, whether we do it on retreat, whether we go to monasteries, whether we just say, you know, broadly speaking, I'm going to work with this, even not in a retreat. I'm just going to look at it. it. It's very, very powerful. And over time, we, we begin to naturally incline towards the cooler place, places, the coolness of renunciation. 
because it's not worth it. <laughs> you know, it's 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 so painful to to uh, be at the mercy of the this incessant wanting. So it's a very valuable uh, characteristic or training rule, if you will. So that's the first one he said. Uh, the second one is uh, being content with little. Finding contentment with uh, simple uh, living. And this can sound like it's at odds with having wealth, and I, and, and I don't think that's what it's saying at all, or having a lot of things in your world. It's just knowing, putting ourselves in a, in, in a context where um, there is little, and finding our way into some semblance of uh, contentment with that. And this is what we do every time we come to the Barry Center for Buddhist Studies, every time we come to uh, IMS or any place where we go on retreat. You know, I'll never forget uh, at the end of uh, my first three-month retreat, you know, when we had these, we used to have these awful things, the Dharma Follies. I don't know if any of you took part in that, but it was awful. I mean, after, after three months of silent meditation, the first thing we do is all assemble in the hall and, and read poems and tell stories and act out and sing songs. And it was like, it was so horrible. You know, they finally did away with it. <laughs> you know, but, but anyway, within that, some people would uh, tell stories, retreat stories. And, and um, one gal uh, told a story about um, how she had no idea whatsoever that she could live with so little. As she came across the country, she had one suitcase, and she uh, spent three months living out of that one suitcase. And <laughs> she was totally amazed by this and, and uh, uh, invigorated by it, you know, just de- delighting. And she said, she put it this way, I didn't know that about myself. I, could, I can do that. I can live like this. And that's a, it's a good thing to know. You never know when conditions will change, and that might be the case. So it's a very practical application. But it also is the case that one um, uh, enjoys that, that uh, place of non-wanting. Uh, you know, is able to, to live with this uh, uh, simple living. And, and now the last one that he told me uh, is a little trickier. And um, it, there's a great setup in the monastic community to support this, but we don't particularly have it as lay people. And this is a deference to elders. You know, def- deference. Deference to elders. You know, so, so um, and then Annie was touching on the uh, seniority system, you know, the way that the monastic community is set up. You're, you always defer to the person who is more senior to you. And uh, I, I, this, uh, the way that th- what this means is that it doesn't matter um, if they're smarter, you know, if they know more, if they understand the Dhamma better, if they're this, that, or the other thing, all these things that we think they, we, they should be, if we're going to defer to them. <laughs> the, the, still, the fact remains that you defer. You know, and, and yeah, it plays out a little differently sometimes because some people are very knowledgeable and they get called upon for that purpose. But um, always um, there's the yielding to the one who is senior. And the effect that that has over the years uh, to, the, to the heart is profound, so they say. It's a, it, it is enormously helpful 
in overcoming self-view. You know, uh, and and in generating um, states of of kindness and support and compassion and generosity, because the the ones who are junior are always taking care of the ones who are senior. You know that that that's a setup, and it's beautiful to watch when you go to the, excuse me go to the monasteries how the the junior monks and nuns will be um, carrying the bags for the seniors or setting their place very nice, spreading their cloth and. Uh, making sure that they always have flowers for their shrines and, and things like this, and 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 that's beautiful. But uh, you know, we have we have the opportunity to work with this in the same way, and many many ex- opportunities here together, like just things like working in the kitchen. You know, for me personally, um, working in the kitchen at the monasteries has been one of the best areas of practice because of this deference quality. And, and it's hard won. I mean, I started out there um, with quite an attitude, you know, like a, um, I know how to cook, and, uh, um, and I know how to cook for a lot of people, and I'm really good at it. So then you go to the monastery and you've got people who are helping you cook who don't know how to boil water, you know? And, and so you're like, oh, we'll do this, and do it this way, and do it. And I, and I would even convince myself uh, in the early years that I was um, uh, just trying to save them uh, a lot of difficulty, to save them from uh, chaos and confusion in the kitchen, or maybe to teach them something, you know. And, and yeah, fair enough. Some of that is true. The more experienced people can, can help you, you know. But uh, for myself, um, uh, I, I began to realize that in my heart I was actually manipulating them, you know, because ultimately I wanted them to do what I wanted them to do, you know. I wanted to, them to do it my way. You know, this is how I want it done. There's a role for that, because there, there is a senior cook sometimes, and uh, you do defer to that person. And maybe if I was in that role, then that's, that's appropriate. But I found even when I was in that role, um, I was uh, manipulating people. And, and had, had very sophisticated ways to get people to do what I wanted them to do. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever watched this in yourself, but when you start to look at that tendency, how we disrespect one another, how we, 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 we have very sophisticated ways to get people to do what we want them to do. And, and I would do that. And so I just began deferring whether they were the senior person or not. Even if I was the senior person, I just started to learn. to, to what I, I picked up what I called my yielding practice. It just yield. Whatever, whatever's going on, yield. You know, I, I would say, you know, cut the carrots like this and this and this and this and this. And they would say, why do you want me to do it that way? And I'd say, well, well like, how do you want to do it? And they'd say, well, I thought I should do it like that and that and that and that and that, you know? And I'd, oh, I'd, I'd just go, yeah, do it that way, you know? Yeah, just keep giving over. Stop uh, uh, um, expecting to have the final say, expecting to be the one whose way um, rules the day. You know, that, that kind of thing. And, and there's many applications where you could find uh, artful and creative ways to, to yield and defer, 
um, in uh, all kinds of situations. And I, I have found this personally to be a huge help in, in my own practice. Just stop being so right. <laughs> stop being the one who's the boss, which as a Leo is hard to do, you know. <laughs> stop being the, 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 big, the, the big kahuna. You know, let other people lead. Let other people have their way. And, and it may create chaos. So what? That kind of thing. Very, very helpful. So uh, for lay people then, um, refuge at this um, mundane level, just the long and short of it is just, uh, yeah, contemplate the value of monastic life, but uh, uh, perhaps for us uh, as Westerners just and, and lay people, continuing to um, uh, see uh, how, what characterizes and the the usefulness of that life. Uh, study that, examine it, and see uh, what aspects of, of that kind of life we can bring into our own life. And there's a lot in the teachings that can really help us with this. And so we take refuge there. So that's, that's uh, one aspect of it, the mundane level. Um, and at the super-mundane, or the liberating level, we're talking about the Arya Sangha. And here, refuge in Sangha means literally practicing in such a way so as to rank ourselves among the enlightened ones. To rank ourselves among those who have at least realized the first stage of awakening in this lifetime. And that's, that's pretty powerful stuff. So here's, here's how the, uh, the, the Buddha puts it. Um, These are the blessed one's disciples who have practiced well, who have practiced directly, who have practiced insightfully, those who practice with integrity, the four pairs, the eight kinds of noble beings. They are the blessed one's disciples. Such ones are worthy of gifts, worthy of hospitality, worthy of offerings, worthy of respect, you know, that, that sense of uh, supporting those who um, have realized. They give occasion for incomparable goodness to arise in the world. So it's it literally ranking ourselves among that population of people. <laughs> not outside the realm of possibilities. Not at all outside the realm of possibilities. So what they say about the Arya Sangha in the Buddhist teachings and practices is that it's absolutely essential that, in a way, uh, each generation cranks out (laughs) some people who have realized uh, awakening. Uh, And just the the fact that we're sitting here uh, enjoying these teachings, uh, learning, uh, is evidence of the fact that that has indeed happened for 2,500 years. Because uh, it's it said that if, that if it's not the case, that uh, people are, um, every generation of people have um, practitioners who are trying to understand the Dhamma, trying to live it, and actually taking it all the way to one or another level of freedom. If that doesn't happen, then what the Dhamma becomes is just an intellectual examination. And it will go into decline at that point. 
So we, they call it a living practice. It, it, is, it is essential that uh, there are um, practitioners in every generation who, uh, who take it all the way. And, um, you know, uh, in addition to that, it, it said that those people stand up as um, living proof they 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 uh, they they when when those who aren't free in the same way come into contact with them, we, we start to vibrate like at a, at a higher level. And I have certainly felt that. I'm sure that you have, whether you're actually in their presence or just picking up the teachings, for example, of uh, such masters as Ajahn Chah or Ajahn Mahabua, you know who. Um, are, are, are almost are, they were in our generation Rajan Mahabua just died a few years ago you know um, th- these are realized beings um, and uh, you look at the effect of their teachings <laughs> you know there's uh, many hundreds of monasteries throughout the east and the west in these lineages and, I, and these are just the ones I know there's many more in, in Burma and many others in, in Thailand and uh, other Theravada countries where, um, you know, the power of um, those who have um, realized uh, uh, the fourth stage of awakening uh, reverberates through, uh, uh, through the, the, the world, through the communities. You know, in, in uh, the Ajahn Chah lineage, there's some, now there's some 20-plus um, monasteries in the West uh, that are uh, satellites of of um, Wapapang, uh, Ajahn Chah's monastery, and, and I think the total in Thailand is uh, something uh, close to that approaches 200. There's many, many monasteries in that lineage, and Ajahn Mahabua the the same. So uh, we pay respects to them, and we turn to them uh, for guidance. Uh, and, and you know, if you've ever been in the presence of any, uh, any of these beings, you know, you know how uh, powerful it can be. Very, very. Um, they're putting out some juice, man, <laughs> you know? and you can feel it, uh, and it's very inspiring. Uh, so that's that's one level of it. But then, then um, it's for us to practice in a way so as. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.